0: Welcome to The Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak, with me, Christian Schiller. I have a a short but packed nonetheless episode for you this week. I have four links of quite varying uh, topics, actually. And I have a short interview, because she was in a bit of a hurry, with Commissioner Goldstein of the Vermont State Government. It might seem like a strange uh, interview subject for me, but this is because the Vermont Government has just introduced a remote workers uh, legislation to try and encourage remote workers to come and move to the state. So that's what we were talking about. Uh, And you can hear that after my roundup of links for the week. First, I'm going to kick off with a topic that was reported in quite a few outlets, but I'm picking in particular Ron Miller's piece on TechCrunch about... A developer who withdrew a component from a GitHub repository so it could no longer be used in ICE, the controversial migration processing platform that a lot of the tech world has has been up in arms around uh, recently in the U.S. This developer in question, Seth Vargo, used to work for Chef um, and he considers that the packages were published by him. So he was within rights to remove them. But Chef argues that he developed them whilst under employment or slash under contract with them and thus they have the right. And if you have ever worked for a company, you often sign agreements saying that work you have done belongs to them uh, without necessarily realizing this. So the legal tussle here is an interesting one, but I suppose the uh, that Seth was still the one with the power <laughs> and maybe that was an oversight from, from Chef itself. But it's quite interesting to know that an, a component that a package then relies upon that a an application then uses can just bring the whole house of cards crashing down. And we have seen this in the past with unintended consequences like removing um, or like a problem with a left pad in the node days brought down a lot of uh, node packages because it was a, such a widely used dependency. So this isn't necessarily the first time that removing a dependency or breaking a dependency has broken a whole application stack, but maybe it's one of the few times we can think of where it was done intentionally for sort of ethical argument, and this sets an interesting precedent. And interestingly, Seth also points out that he is one of, I would say, very few developers I've heard of who has actually determined what he wants to happen to his code when he dies, which is it's deleted, which is a whole other interesting argument. And he said that had he died on the same day he did this, the same thing would have happened. So maybe companies should be better prepared for dependencies being withdrawn or changing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think dependencies have become something that, forgive the pun, we depend upon and we don't always think about what will happen if they are no longer available, uh, and as you could see with potentially catastrophic repercussions. And likewise, he points out that he did ask Chef multiple times to discuss the issue before just uh, removing the package but they never responded so there we go poor communication poor understandings not necessarily understanding the implications of using dependencies it sounds like a bit of a mess but made for very valid reasons and i'm sure we will start to see more of these sorts of actions in the future and will people be any better prepared then we shall see continuing in a uh, similar vein technologically speaking not to Topically speaking, though, this is an article about Docker, Uh, again, widely reported. But this particular one is from ZDNet, from my favourite, Stephen J. Vaughan Nichols, talking about how Docker is in trouble. Uh, And then there were plenty of other articles that came out saying that they weren't. I myself have been noticing this for some time when I was at KubeCon, uh, the Kubernetes conference. And I think this is something that the article points out that Kubernetes has kind of superseded all the special source that Docker was able to add to its open source offering to monetize. And with that removed, and I guess the same done by many cloud vendors, it may be the one that created or or kickstarted the technology revolution of containers that everyone is now using, or a lot of people are now using, even though they were nothing new. Docker kind of re-kickstarted or reignited the interest, I suppose. It's always been very difficult for them to actually have a viable business out of it. They've received a lot of investment. The article details how much, but are yet to really find a way to monetize on top of that. They've tried cloud services, premium services, and none have really been very successful. And this is something I noticed at KubeCon. You know, Docker is a technology that underpins still uh, a lot of Kubernetes installations, and yet. Docker themselves as a company had a tiny booth and a tiny presence at the conference. And even a few years ago, this might have been different. Um, but maybe that the steam is starting to run out of the ship and they're not entirely sure what to do. If they're running out of money, then marketing budgets become tougher and tougher. And actually, technologies that they kind of helped create have ended up somewhat pushing them out of the way, which is interesting. And it's also one of these cases where you could say that... Um, Speaking as, as say, a collection of people trying to solve a problem, they've kind of solved the problem, but have ended up superseding themselves through their own success, or other people have ended up doing that, to be more precise. And it's kind of an interesting argument to think about, that sometimes you could say, well, we've been successful, but we're just not a viable business. Uh, and this <laughs> doesn't necessarily help pay all the wages of people at a company if they have to get laid off, but it's this kind of interesting aspect to think about of well you've sort of you've sort of changed and revolutionized uh, the development industry, but almost at your own victory for your own success, so what do you do next kind of thing so yeah I don't know what's going to happen. I personally don't think Docker has much of a chance to monetize. I think their best outcome is probably to be acquired by somebody, but who uh, again they have not played that well with the ecosystem that they mix in, and will anyone want to buy them is is another. Another argument to be made, especially when a lot of uh, companies who might have kind of ended up creating their own solutions instead, because of the way that uh, they made it sort of difficult to work with as a company. So it could be argued that um, Docker kind of sealed their own coffin. But um, anyway, I sort of shed a small tear for them because I've always kind of liked what they what they did. Uh, at least from a marketing and packaging perspective, if not from a technical perspective, which is often one of the things that people criticise them for. But sometimes, you know, getting people to use something is more important than necessarily creating the best technology. Well, that's that's my opinion anyway. And feel free to contact me to further that discussion. If you agree or disagree, I'd love to hear from you. Transitioning sort of out of the usual technology space that I lurk in into something quite different. This is an article on the New York Times magazine, written by William... sounds like a German surname, so I nearly mispronounced the first name as well. Written by William Langevicher. I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce that. I want to Germanify it, but I'm guessing he's American, so I'm not entirely sure how he pronounce it. But anyway, we're not here to figure out name pronunciations. We're to talk about his article, which is called What Really Brought Down the Boeing 737 MAX. And this is a very long read that... I got very sucked into and found quite interesting about what could have caused the Boeing 737 MAX to be such, uh, well, yes, such a disaster it was, uh, is being. And there's a lot of things in here that you may not necessarily think about. A lot of them around, uh, centre around a couple of airlines in particular parts of the world, especially sort of Southeast Asia, uh, and their (laughs) thirst for expansion maybe at the sacrifice of other things, and then the thirst of a company to supply what they needed, i.e. new planes. Then we have Boeing's thirst to keep up with with Airbus, who kind of uh, revolutionized plane technology in their own ways, and Boeing fell behind a bit, and uh, Boeing were trying to keep up and introduce some features that weren't necessarily very well implemented and confused pilots uh, and then that ties in with a lot of the pilots at these airlines being not very experienced, um, and this ah oh, this story goes so deep. It also ties into some things a little bit that I read in a Malcolm Gladwell book about how they revolutionised air safety back in the nineties with communications training between pilots, uh, especially again in certain parts of the world where it's often considered bad form to. To question your superiors when maybe that's actually the most important thing you should do, especially in a cockpit when you're kind of there to check each other. So if if anything from any of this interests you, if, if flying, if if uh, airplane technology, if kind of company politics and uh, the the cutthroatness of the business world, especially at this kind of scale, interests you, or uh, learning about airline industry in Southeast Asia, which sounds kind of scary, and I don't think I ever want to fly in any of these airlines, um, interest you as well, then it's really quite a fascinating read that you'll spend. I think I spent about three lunchtimes reading it, actually, but it was well worth it. I found it fascinating. So enjoy. And finally, not really uh, an article. This is actually a Wikipedia page. Uh, I like to sometimes recommend different things. I'm starting to diversify what I cover on the podcast. I heard about this through uh I heard about this through no such thing as a fish the podcast created by the QI researchers about the Jefferson Bible Thomas Jefferson is famous for very many things and one of them I didn't know about was his bible he created his own bible mostly in chronological order and removing a lot of the uh shall we say most unbelievable content things like Jesus' miracles and stuff like that And he did this by cutting pages out of multiple Bibles and gluing them together in a somewhat um, uncoherent but chronologically correct and reduced summarized version of the Bible. Uh, And apparently copies of it were given to every US president up until relatively recently when they ran out. There are copies of it on display at the Smithsonian as well, which I would love to go and see one day. And the whole thing is quite fascinating. I think the text is also available online. Uh, it's long out of copyright, of course, the Bible and his version of the Bible. Um, but just, he did this when he was retired as president, by the way. He wasn't doing this when he was sort of completely active uh, as a president or as anything else. But I don't know. I found the story interesting. Uh, no particular reason it grabbed me. I've always been into religious history and the fact that this this version that was created in this different interpretation, uh, actually of the New Testament, I should specify that, not the whole Bible, just the New Testament, And, you know, the the Bible itself is really just someone else's editing job. So why can't someone else create their own in a more modern era? I mean, it it should be allowable, really. Whoever decided that the Bible should be in the order it is in was was someone in the past. And especially with the Gospels, when they are basically all sort of reporting back on the same events, uh, you're kind of reading the same story over and over again, or the same stories over and over again with different details. So if they were consolidated, then actually... You kind of learn about it in a much quicker, more efficient way. So, yeah, (laughs) I found it an interesting read. I don't know if I'll ever read the Bible itself. Uh, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, pop by Wikipedia and fall down some other rabbit holes whilst you do. And uh, if, if that interests you in any way, then I'd love to hear from you. Next is my interview with Commissioner Goldstein of the Vermont State Government, where we talk briefly and she is quite brief and to the point, um, but that is good, and I think she had to rush off to another meeting, talks about a new program they have started to try and encourage people to move to the state because they were depopulating, uh, and they're doing this through encouraging people who are remote workers, mostly software developers, to move to the state. Um, before everyone gets excited, it's restricted to already Americans, unfortunately. can't take it, I can't take advantage of it, for example. But still, it's interesting to see how... Uh, Governments can introduce policy to, to introduce new workforces into their communities, I suppose, and how successful they might be. So enjoy.
1: I'm Joan Goldstein. I'm the Commissioner of Economic Development for the state of Vermont.
0: And for let's just for a little bit of uh, clarity for people who aren't U.S.-based, where is Vermont in the U.S.?
1: Vermont is in the New England region. It's the upper northeast. Uh, So if you to our south is Massachusetts, to our west is New York, to our east is New Hampshire, if that helps.
0: I, I, yeah, I, I have been to obviously to to New York. I've also been to Providence, Rhode Island. So I guess I've been around. Oh, wonderful around the area. Yep. <laughs> um, and I mean, is it a big state? Is it a relatively small state?
1: Very small state. Very small population. About six hundred and twenty-seven thousand people. And where would
0: what's what's kind of the the state capital? Just to see if people know. State
1: it. capital is Montpelier.
0: Okay. I have been to the Montpellier in France, but I'm guessing it's... uh, Ah, okay. (laughs) I don't know if it's connected, but it is. Um, And I mean, I I suppose that some of these smaller states sometimes struggle with growth, I guess, of traditional industry jobs and things like that, um, closing down, moving on. I mean, this is obviously an ongoing issue in American politics generally, and not just America, but also in the rest of the world. Um, is that is that something that the state has, has struggled with trying to replace some of these jobs that have moved on?
1: It's really, uh, we're struggling with um, just um, getting enough people into the state. We've had pretty stagnant uh, population growth. And as a result of people aging out of the workforce, the workforce has also shrunk. And so that's Those were the defining kind of parameters around what are we going to do to attract more people to the state. And that's how we that's how the legislature actually came up with the remote worker grant program.
0: Yeah. And that's what we're here to talk about. Um, I I can't actually remember where I came across the 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 topic now. I I live in Berlin, in Germany. I, I was born in London. I lived in Melbourne, in Australia. So why? Are we speaking <laughs> from kind of uh, coast to coast as it were. I have remote worked for several companies for quite a while. I remote work with a lot of people who live in small places in small country towns in um, remote areas, because it makes, it makes life possible. Uh, you should sure. kind of be wherever you want. But sure. as far as I know, and I might be wrong, you've probably done more research than me you're kind of the first governmental body to recognize the potential advantages of remote workers. Is that, is that the case? Or did you learn from some other people who've tried similar ideas?
1: No, I think, I think we were the first out of the gate with the program. Um, There've been some others that have kind of copied um, to some extent, but we were the first out of the gate, which is why there was so much press. And um, that's probably how you read about it because there was worldwide press coverage um, I was interviewed. Also, there was a BBC that, you know, there was, it was very, there were over 900 articles written and about 2 billion impressions. And so we really got publicity value out of this in addition to, you know, getting people to move to the state. So. Mm-hmm yeah, I don't think we, you know, the only ones that have the idea, but it's also an acknowledgement that remote work really is the way people work in the 21st century. You don't longer need to be tied to bricks and mortar. And uh, this is a recognition of that fact.
0: And let's, let's, uh, let's dig into the success metrics a little bit more in a minute, but how old is the program? How long has it existed? It's
1: just, uh, it was signed into law last year in 2018. It, it, it went into effect January 2020. So, um so it's not old at all. It's you know, we're just uh 9 months through it and uh
0: yeah, I mean it's been very successful. What, we we've talked around the law, but what what is it? What what does it what does it try to do and and how does it do it?
1: So, basically, it would pay somebody um up to $5,000 per year for 2 years. Um, if they move to the state and work remotely for uh, a business from outside the state, and we would reimburse them for uh, their moving expenses and, um, yeah, their moving expenses and their uh, co-working expense and any broadband extension expense.
0: And. This- does that person generally end up as, uh, forgive me if I don't use the correct American terms, but as a, as a freelancer or, I mean, I'm guessing, you're, are you insisting that the company they work for set up a, a branch in Vermont or is freelancing okay?
1: They don't have to set up a branch, but they have to be an employee, not a contractor, not a freelancer ah, per se. Okay. okay.
0: And does that mean they have to work for American companies or at least a company with an American uh, legal entity, I suppose? Uh,
1: we didn't really put uh, that onus on, but just knowing that the company, if they have even one employee in the state of Vermont, they're um, responsible, they have a tax liability. So, um, yeah, so I'm not sure if that's attractive to out-of-the-country um, entities, but we have not come across that.
0: There's obviously also are there going to be other issues... <laughs> around people who come from other countries which is is a whole other conversation, yeah a whole but. other ball of wax yeah <laughs> um and just actually actually out of interest because you mentioned you cover co-working costs too how many co-working spaces does Vermont have
1: uh quite a few I actually don't have the full number but in almost every downtown uh across the across the state there's a co-working space so um this would also be a way for those to get more populated,
0: and, and were those uh, already established, or did a lot of them kind of spring up thanks to this program?
1: Uh, they were they were already established or in the midst of being established. Um, so it's not as if the program prompted it, although oh. it works very nicely in conjunction with it. So.
0: so, so it kind of sounds like you already had. At least a reasonable degree of a population that was either working remote or kind of maybe newer businesses that used things like co-working spaces—is is that the case, or so there was there already kind of a, a reasonable body of people doing something like this?
1: Yeah, I think I think that there are the ones in the cities are doing better. Like the ones in Burlington are much more populated than the ones in the more rural areas. So we, you know, this is an idea to get more it get it more populated
0: all right so you mentioned it's it's been running for nine months you had a lot of interest uh, i'm guessing there's going to be there have been a lot of interest from people who couldn't apply um but let's uh as far as you know and i'm guessing there's still going to be a lot in process because moving even state and city can take some time um do you have numbers of how many people actually took the program and have then relocated
1: Sure, so there were, um, as of the middle of September, there were 84 applicants Mm. um, resulting, hold on just a minute, 84 grants were awarded, but people moved to the state with their partners and children, so 218 people moved.
0: 218 wow okay <laughs> that's not too bad for nine months not actually, too right? bad right yeah 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 and um so then i guess what well, what are the benefits the state gets the, the the obviously new people who who buy houses or rent houses and, yep. and invest in local businesses and things like that but just to clarify some of the points you said earlier are you also getting um you're, well you're getting i guess some form of tax revenue as yeah. well as as all that yeah is this is this uh, so far do you do you find the scheme is being as successful as you hoped or were you hoping for more or it's completely unprecedented like what's the kind of level of success you were hoping for versus what you've got so far
1: we actually didn't have any idea because again this didn't come from the administration it came from the legislature they came up with it and they mm-hmm. kind of gave us this program that we needed to implement so we had to create the program and implement it we had no idea But we had no idea also that it would be this popular and that much in demand. So I think we're pleased Mm -hmm. with the outcome. Obviously, we want more because we want more people. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think this was a very good case showing that people do respond to incentives. They do want to move to Vermont. And they moved all over the state. They moved into rural areas. They moved into the city. So we have a very nice... Um, diversity of locations which is another uh goal
0: do you i mean do you stay in touch with the people who relocate um firstly in terms of finding out if they how they're finding living living in vermont and finding the change um so i have not you know personally
1: followed up with each and well, every sure. one of them but <laughs> um you know it's it's an idea, it's a thought that we should gather them all together, but we have not done that yet. We're still busy implementing the program
0: Do you have any um kind of qualification on the program of how long someone has to stay to be considered kind of completed
1: uh there is no there is no uh limit um mm-hmm. there is no guideline just again because to try to administer that would be yeah, yeah. very difficult.
0: And what are the sorts of jobs that most people are are employed in that have been accepted so far?
1: Oh the jobs all right, so for the most part it's software. For the most yeah. part, it is um you know, information technology type jobs. So hold on, I have that breakdown.
0: That's kind of what I was guessing, but yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Thirty-one percent are in information technology. Um, That's
0: actually, lower, maybe.
1: Yeah, thirteen yeah, percent in management, eight yeah. percent writing and editing, six percent finance, six yeah. percent sales, five percent marketing.
0: Okay. And um, I mean, obviously, with a with a worker comes, as you already mentioned, family, and actually quite a lot of family by the sound of it. Uh, have you experienced any problems there with? Um, People bringing families, and there not being enough local resources for those families, or were those facilities also kind of running a little empty? And yeah, empty it's,
1: it's really good for them to bring their families because the schools mm-hmm. are. we also suffering from declining population.
0: I, I'm guessing in the cities, it would be be less of a of a reaction. But has there been any any reaction from the local residents where people moved to? I mean. You know, sometimes, sometimes as bad as it may be for a community, sometimes there are some communities that kind of like the way they've become, you know, (laughs) and don't like change.
1: No, exactly. Of course, there's always going to be part of that. Um, You know, there's always going to be something like that. Like some people like it. Some people are, you know, worried about new people, but you know, that's just human nature.
0: (laughs) Very true. And uh, I guess just on the on the sort of more technical side, um, you mentioned you also cover broadband costs. Does Does Vermont have pretty good coverage for that sort of thing?
1: Uh, it does have pretty good coverage. I mean, uh, at every co working space, there's definitely broadband. Yeah. Um, obviously, in the more rural areas, there are some issues in terms of getting broadband to the last mile of of mm-hmm. home. But that's why we reimburse people for membership into the co-working space because we mm-hmm. recognize they have to go where there's broadband.
0: And you actually mentioned quite a few people have have been interested in, in what you've done. Uh, are you are you able to mention any of the kind of other uh, governmental or other organizations around America or around the world that have been interested?
1: Yeah, there's a city in Oklahoma called Tulsa and Tulsa also came up with a remote worker
0: program. is it a, a sim they have a similar sort of problem and they had a similar idea to 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 cope with it.
1: Um yeah, they had a similar problem and yeah, it is a similar idea.
0: I guess I guess the next question would be um I mean you're still pretty early days and pretty busy rolling it out but do you intend to change or make additions to the program moving forward based on learning so far?
1: So what we've done this year um, in the legislative session, which will be effective January 2020, we are making a program uh, available to new workers that work for Vermont employers because we have a problem with getting enough employees for Vermont employers, so we have changed the program to include those. So you can move to Vermont, and work for a Vermont company, and also get reimbursed for your moving expenses.
0: Mm. And that might be in a more traditional kind of in, a, in an office or remote. Either way, correct. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, what's what's your what's your? Uh, I, I don't know if if it was mostly your idea or a gather a. a um, a collection of people's ideas but have you remote worked yourself in the past is that kind of what gave you the idea
1: um yeah i you know it's hard to remote work as commissioner but um yeah, for sure. it, <laughs> it just is but you know depending on the time of year but um you know if i could manage one day a week that that makes sense if there's writing or things that i have to get done without interruption but um yeah, but not as a regular course, but in my past I've also remote worked and yeah. I mean I I think it's it's much more popular than it's ever been, so.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking think of kind of bigger picture here, do you do you anticipate this this being the future of work, or at least a component of the the future of
1: work. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a very important component. I think we'll see more and more of it. Just as people, technology improvement and different sensibilities of being able to work wherever. Um, I think we'll we'll continue to see it grow. Obviously, there are things you need to show up for. So, and it, you know, there's nothing that takes the place of face to face interaction. Um, so, I think it's a balance.
0: That was my interview with Commissioner Goldstein of the Vermont State Government. I hope you enjoyed the interview and the links. That's another Weekly Squeak, a short, compact episode this time around. Next week, I actually have an interview with Hadera uh, Hashgraph, another sort of blockchain project. Not quite, as we will discuss next week. Um, I may release that next week or the week after because I'm going to be at DevCon in Osaka most of next week and quite busy most of the week. And then I have a lot more events coming up after that, ApacheCon, uh, Velocity and O'Reilly event, STC down in Stuttgart, uh, a lot of events coming up that you can find on my website at kristinchiller.com slash events. If you've, if you've enjoyed the show, you can find previous episodes and show notes, and soon, soon, maybe even with this episode, I need to sort of still testing and see how well it works, uh, live transcripts of the audio as well. They won't be completely accurate, but they will help those of you who can't always keep up with uh, what I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe the transcripts probably won't be accurate either, but you can find them there, and I hope you enjoy that. If you have enjoyed the show, please rate, review, share to your friends. I would always love to get new listeners, and you can find ways to get in touch with me, support my work, etc., etc., at christianshiller.com slash contact. I'd love to hear your opinions on the show. Until next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.